listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amir, one of the PhD students of the program. The Wall Street Journal once described Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny as the man Vladimir Putin fears the most on the planet. And judging by the activity of both the Russian president and the fearsome anti-corruption advocate, there's definitely a case to be made about just that. Navalny's been a staunch critic of the controversial Russian president and the epidemic of corruption within his government for nearly a decade, taking his cause to civil society through various NGOs and to the public at large, not only through his storied political career, but also through powerful social media campaigns and self-produced documentaries. Amassing a following of millions online, Navalny's become the face of the modern reformist movement in Russia. And while he's inspired a new generation of activism, he's also endured the brunt of its retaliation from the Kremlin through a myriad of criminal allegations, prison sentences, and even attempts on his life. In August of 2020, Navalny was poisoned using the Novichok nerve agent, a substance developed and used by Russian authorities against enemies abroad. This was the third time Navalny had been attacked using a chemical agent since 2017. But by far, it had the worst outcome, with Navalny being forced into a medically induced coma for nearly two weeks. Upon his return to Russia in January of this year, he was immediately detained and later sentenced to two years in a remote prison for violating his parole. The response from Russian citizens has been nothing short of historic with protests emerging throughout the country in the days and weeks following Navalny's detainment, calling not only for his release, but for a transformation of Russian governance towards greater accountability, transparency, and respect for the rule of law. The current protests are the largest Russia has seen in over a decade, and they mark a potential critical juncture in the Putin regime's two-decade control over the state. To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by Professor Andrea Chandler. Dr. Chandler is a professor with the Department of Political Science here at Carleton University, specializing in Russian politics and government and the politics of gender in post-communist states. Thank you very much for joining me today, Professor Chandler. No problem. So since January 23rd, protests have erupted throughout Russia in support of Alexei Navalny, a man described by the Wall Street Journal as the man Russian President Vladimir Putin fears most. And I want to get into those protests in a minute. But first, I was just wondering, who is Navalny? And why does Vladimir Putin allegedly fear him so much? Alexei Navalny is a totally unique figure in Russian politics. And I would even say in Russian history, there's never really been anyone quite like him in terms of an ability to build a mass movement that simultaneously projects his own personal charisma while creating a very solid organization. He came to prominence about 10 or 11 years ago as a blogger who exposed uh, details of government financial irregularities and raised questions uh, about alleged corruption. Then after the 2011 parliamentary elections, Navalny emerged as one of the leaders of protests. Uh, against allegations that the election had irregularities. And it turned out that Navalny was a very charismatic public speaker and protest leader. And he's continued to build from there and he's established powerful social media networks. He's also showed his political ambitions. He ran for the Moscow mayor's office in 2013. 
and he tried to run for the Russian presidency in 2018, uh, but he was not allowed to register as a candidate because of a highly questionable criminal conviction. So in terms of why is Navalny a threat, I don't know about Putin's opinions or motives as a person, but in, in my view, I think there's several factors that make Navalny unsettling to the inner circles of the state. First, I think that under the current leadership, there's actually a sort of habit to treat the opposition as a danger rather than a friendly rival or constructive critic, and all the more so if an opposition leader becomes popular. I think it's a kind of reflex, a uh, spy mentality that dissenting voices need to be countered. On this theme, listeners might be interested in an excellent book by Catherine Belton called Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and then Took on the West. And this book was uh, published in 2020 by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, and it's gotten very good reviews. Another issue is that, there is that Navalny is the kind of leader who's really built an issue that's not wholly dependent on him. He's the public face of the movement, but someone who's shared his skill set and knowledge in order to be part of a multifaceted movement. But I'm not sure that the Putin regime actually realizes this, preferring instead to focus on one individual rather than realizing that he's only the tip of the iceberg. I personally think part of the issue with Navalny is that he's everything that Vladimir Putin once aspired to be and no longer is. Navalny's young, handsome, highly articulate. He can also be very funny when he pokes fun at the pretensions of the top elite. Vladimir Putin has been in power over 20 years. He's now 68, and he appears increasingly aloof from the public. And it's often observed that Putin has failed to cultivate the next generation of leaders who are Navalny's age or younger. So since Navalny's return to detainment on January 21st of this year, protests have erupted throughout Russia. And these mark kind of the largest public demonstrations against the regime in nearly a decade. And I'm wondering, why have citizens taken to the streets? Is it only about Navalny or has he struck a deeper chord amongst the Russian people? I think it's partly because Navalny's uh, survival of a poisoning attempt and his return to Russia gained a huge amount of international media attention. And so there's now even more awareness of his activities in Russia, where the mainstream media has not covered him much. And the media attention was heightened by the fact that Navalny's organization released a video, Putin's Palace, that received uh, over 100,000 YouTube views after it was released. And it was released the same week that Navalny was arrested. I think one of the biggest weaknesses for the Russian regime is the persistence of corruption. Putin came into power in uh, 2000 calling for a return to the rule of law. Well, technically, he actually came to power in 1999 as uh, prime minister, but was elected president in 2000. So he called for a return to law, but there is a perception that corruption is still uh, a very serious problem. And so it, uh, it's often argued that many Russians have lost patience with corruption and the sense that the improved uh, governance of the Russian state did not really materialize. It may also, I think, have something to do with the fact that citizens in neighboring Belarus have been protesting against a questionable presidential election for close to six months now. And they've possibly inspired their Russian peers. I think that the Belarusian protests 
and Navalny put together have sparked a kind of narrative about courage, about taking risks to be together in public space with members of your nation that has struck a chord in this part of the world. So you mentioned kind of Putin's growing aloofness to public life. But I'm wondering, what's the response been from the Russian government as a whole, not just in terms of the on the ground response, but also in terms of the way in which, you know, the narrative of public discontent is being attended to? That's a good question. And, you know, my perception is that it's not really being acknowledged very well. Putin, I think, has this, um, this image of of being somebody who is a man of the people. Uh, he was known for his, you know, athletic prowess, sometimes his publicity stunts, shirtless photos and so forth. Uh, and he has done things like hosting a regular call-in show where he answers questions that he usually has this call-in show once a year. And for years, he kind of had this narrative that Russia could restore its power and that Russia needed to, to counter the West, and that the West was a potential threat to Russia. But in the last few years, that, that's, it's been harder, I think, to sustain that narrative. The Russian economy has really been stagnating in, in recent years, and there doesn't seem to be much of an answer in terms of how to improve the economy and experts tend to argue that there needs to be much more economic diversification and a really more open approach to the economy. And Putin's approach in the last few years has been more to try to depict himself perhaps less as a nationalist leader and more as um, more as a technocrat who is going to use the state in order to try to achieve gradual improvement in the economy, and that he's sort of uh, built a narrative of his own experience as, as a leader. But this technocratic kind of image, again, is still very aloof. And so um, that may well be very much part of his problem, a perception perhaps that he's out of touch, that he's becoming more remote. So have these protests compared to previous anti-corruption protests in Russia? Because you mentioned that, like, the discontent towards illicit activity in the government is, you know, kind of a constant issue amongst Russian citizens. But I wonder, do you think these protests mark a shift uh, in society as, as it relates to the government? What's striking about these recent demonstrations was their scale and scope. They occurred in, in cities and towns, and most recently in backyards across Russia, at the same time, were well-organized, used common themes. There are not too many historical examples of organized, nationwide protests across Russia. And there's every reason why people should have been deterred from protesting. Uh, in the winter 2021, especially after seeing the extreme violence in Belarus uh, in the last few months, and especially considering that concerns about uh, COVID-19 will often keep people indoors rather than, than outdoors. And yet people did come out to protest, and in the Russian winter. And of course, what's constantly noticed is how many of Navalny's supporters are young under 30, under 35. Navalny seems to have really spoken to that millennial generation in Russia. 
The old myth about protest in Russia is that it was confined to aging dissidents, mainly in Moscow and St. Petersburg, the two big cities. And that myth has been shattered. So how's the global community responded to these protests and the arrest of Navalny? In particular, I'm wondering how the new Biden administration in the U.S. has reacted, you know, given the sort of contentious relationship that's been emerging with Biden and Russia over the past few years. The Biden administration showed from its first week that it was going to be much firmer than the previous administration in its efforts to hold Vladimir Putin to account, especially on matters of human rights. Biden is uh, said to have personally raised Navalny's case during his first phone call with Vladimir Putin. Uh, Recently, the foreign ministers of the G7, which includes the United States and, of course, also Canada, among others, issued a statement on Navalny. That was on January 26th. And they called upon Russia to um, respect the human rights of Navalny and others. And what I find interesting is that they asserted that Russia should investigate the use of Novichok, which was um, allegedly used in the poisoning of Navalny last August, which they deemed to be a chemical weapon. And so this is kind of a, a, a different level than criticizing a country's human rights because it it has to do with you know international understanding of how things should be regulated. And this indicates that there's there's a, definitely compared to the previous Trump administration, there's a much more Western unified response that treats the question of Navalny's poisoning as a fact, not a hypothesis, but a fact. And so that is that is relevant to uh, to the way that he has been treated in the last month or so. So as of now, the various Western governments are considering which additional sanctions might be appropriate for Russia. And the uh, European Court of Human Rights uh, recently called for Navalny's release. Um, Navalny has successfully gone to the European Court of Human Rights on three uh, occasions, as is his right, as Russia is a member state of the Council of Europe and is therefore expected to uphold the human rights uh, commitments in the European Convention on Human Rights. And the European Court is the arbiter of that, of compliance with that convention. Now, at the same time, Putin's Russia at the moment seems to be quite uninterested in the response of Western countries or international institutions in Russian human rights issues. And it's now um, almost seven years ago that Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine. And Western sanctions, which continue to exist in response to the annexation of Crimea, they did not get Russia to back down from that stance. So I'm not sure that any Western pressure on Putin regarding Navalny will have any particular immediate impact on the Russian president. But that doesn't mean that Western countries shouldn't raise it, as it will probably be very important to many people in Russia to know that Navalny is remembered. So where does Navalny's arrest leave the opposition movement against Putin in Russia? You know, I I have this great fear when I first heard about him returning and immediately being arrested and, you know, thrown in a a remote jail that like, you know, he essentially became like a martyr and now might disappear. But I'm wondering if, are there any other people who are taking up the charge since his arrest? Are there any emerging leaders in the movement beyond Navalny? 
Well, this is definitely a low point for the opposition in Russia. There are other examples of prominent opposition leaders who have left the scene. For example, Garry Kasparov and Mikhail Khodorkovsky uh, both left Russia and continue their political activism from abroad. Another prominent democratic leader, Boris Nemtsov, was assassinated in 2015. There are other opposition leaders in Russia today, but they're in a very precarious situation, I think, and don't have necessarily the nationwide uh, prominence that Navalny has. Elections for the lower house of Russia's parliament, the Duma, are expected for later this year, and that may explain why there seems to be an imperative from the regime to try to contain the opposition. But at the same time, Periods leading up to an election in Russia tend to be a time when uh, new faces, new interesting faces appear on the political scene. And so it'll be an, an interesting year in to watch Russian politics. For me, the real question is not where the protests are going, but where's the regime going? If the regime manages to contain the protests for the time being, then what? In political science, we know that protests can be a valuable feedback loop. They can provide an opportunity for the leadership to hear concerns from civil society, to respond with concrete improvements. In this case, the leadership does not seem to be listening, but nor does it seem to have apparent solutions to the state of the Russian economy. And the top elite appears to be uh, fairly ossified. It's a lot of the same faces in power, not just in the political leadership of the state, but in the leadership of the political parties, the main political parties represented in the Duma. And also isolated from much of the international environment, Russia has few friends and fewer allies. The leadership is is adrift, I would say. And they've ceased to provide a vision for a prosperous future for ordinary Russian citizens. So how long can a regime continue this way with such drift and stagnation? As somebody who studied first the Soviet Union and then Russia for a long time, this is a question that has always intrigued me. We know that authoritarian regimes can survive for a very long time if we judge by the longevity of the former Soviet Union, which survived for over 70 years, or authoritarian regimes such as Hosni Mubarak's in Egypt. He was in power for some 30 years. So they can stay in power for a long time, but we never really know how long they're going to last. The thing about the Russian protests that I find interesting is that they're really quite focused on Putin's leadership, he and his inner circle, as the key problem. They're not really demanding regime change or a Western-style liberal democracy, but rather for their existing constitution and laws to function as they're supposed to. And in that sense, it's kind of difficult to paint them as being some kind of radical or foreign-inspired movement. This is quite a Russian-inspired movement. I think no matter what, though, we're just in the midst of it, and there's many more years to come in terms of these issues unfolding. 
it'll be interesting to continue to watch it. But anyways, the last question I'd want to ask, you know, you're one of the most revered tenured faculty here. Every student I know who's had you has had nothing but great things to say about you. And I'm just wondering, you know, what have you been well, working on? Well, that's so on? sweet. Tell us a bit <laughs> about your work. Ah, well, in recent years, I've explored various topics at the intersection of some diverse themes, gender politics, human rights, foreign policy, and social welfare. So I could mention two pieces that appeared in 2020 that I wrote. The first is uh, Populism and Social Policy, a Challenge to Neoliberalism or a Complement to It. And so that uh, was published in World Affairs, June 2020. And in that paper, I tried to examine the question of populism and social policy and what kinds of social policies populists undertake and with what results. And so with that paper, I focused on the uh, recent raising of the pension age in Russia, which happened in 2018 and which was very uh, unpopular, I'd say. Uh, and then I have another paper that's so far been published online first, but the title of that one is Russia's Laws on Non-Traditional Relationships as Response to Global Norm Diffusion, uh, and that's International Journal of Human Rights. And so it, it appeared as online first as of the 9th of July, 2020. And so in that paper, I examined the laws that Russia passed in 2013 that were oriented towards restricting speech about LGBTQ issues, LGBTQ rights and relationships. And uh, I was trying to examine those laws, not only as policies that have an impact on the rights of LGBTQ individuals, but whether uh, those laws could be considered disinformation insofar as they, they put forth stereotypes about LGBTQ individuals that, that are not uh, accurate. In the more longer term, I've been working slowly on a more historical project, totally different, about Canada's foreign policy with East European states during the Cold War, uh, which I'm trying to examine from a, well, kind of from a constructivist perspective. Uh, I'm interested in the well-intentioned perhaps, but contradictory discourses that liberal democratic states had with respect to the effort to promote human rights and democracy behind the Iron Curtain. I, I just have this, I guess, enduring fascination with the idea of East-West dialogue about human rights and how it's um, how it's intertwined with a whole lot of other foreign policy and domestic policy issues. Uh, and I just decided that I wanted to do some work that was more historical. And I've presented several conference papers on this topic, and I'm hoping to work on a book manuscript during my upcoming sabbatical starting in 2022. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore Poly dot sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU dot PolySci.